Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it is a joy to be in your presence. It is a joy to have a renewed relationship with you through Christ. It is a joy to be able to worship you freely. Father, thank you for the blessing that we have in Christ for the relationship that we have with you. Thank you that we are not far off. We are no longer your enemies. We are no longer at odds with you, but we have been reconciled through Christ. Father, I pray this morning as we look at your word, as we continue to look at this gospel and at the story of redemption unfolding in the person of Christ, that we would better understand what went into our glorious salvation. Just be with us now in your name. Amen. I would invite you to turn to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 2 starting in verse 12 this morning. There's a question that's going to carry us through the morning. The question is this. What causes Jesus to become angry? We are going to see Jesus lose his ever-loving mind on some people this morning. We are going to see him lose his temper. We are going to see him uh, have anger, righteous anger at that. Now, I'll put on the front end, because he's angry, that does not mean that he is a sinner. You can, as Ephesians 4 says, you can be angry and yet not sin. And we're going to see Jesus have righteous anger against some people. But there are a few things that stick out to me about Jesus as it, re- as it relates to his anger and his emotions in the Gospels. We see Jesus' anger come up very few times, actually. Jesus doesn't hit that emotion very often. But each and every time, we see him angry. We see him frustrated. We see him direct. It is always towards the misuse and the misunderstanding of religion. It's always towards the Pharisees. It's always towards those people who are taking something that was given to us by God and are misusing it and are misunderstanding it. And we're going to see that that's exactly what's happening this morning. Now, the, the passage, the story that we're going to look at is Jesus is cleansing the temple. Uh, there's, if, if you're just reading this in the flow of the narrative, uh, the, the transition from the wedding at Cana to the cleansing of the temple is very abrupt. But we're going to see that uh, it is important Nonetheless, So I want to start by reading verse 12. Verse 12 is a transition statement. We just left Jesus from Cana. He just turned 120 gallons of water into 120 gallons of wine. He just started a party and celebration in Cana that kept going for many nights, I am sure, because of the amount of wine that was there. His disciples, as they are joined him, all of a sudden realize, oh, our teacher, our master, our Discipler can change the very elements of this earth. I'm sticking with him. And we can see in verse 12 that after this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, just some transition details. Capernaum is on the northwest shore of Galilee, and it's about 16 miles from Cana. Now, why does John put in these Transitions these these travel details. I don't know. I think some of it is just to highlight the fact that Jesus actually walked this earth. There is a road map, if you will, for where Jesus walked with his disciples. 
And then we get down to the cleansing of the temple. I want to read our passage for us. It's 2, 12, 13 through 22. And it says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it went down to Capernaum. They go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a mountain. So, or is on a hill. So, they're always going up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews, the authorities, the people in charge said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things, crazy man? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, laughingly, mockingly, uh, excuse me, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Just to set the scene for us so we might understand what's going on. It's the time of the Passover. What is that? Well, the Passover time was a very important week in the religious calendar and the year's calendar. And it was a time when the Jews would gather together at the temple to remember what the Lord did on the Passover. Now, maybe you might not know what that is. So let me remind us this morning. The Passover was that time all the way back in Exodus when Israel was in Egypt and they thought they were stuck. They thought they had no hope. They thought they were never getting out. And the Lord, through a series of plagues, led them up to the Passover moment when he said, take a lamb and slaughter this lamb and put the blood of the lamb above your doorpost because I'm going to send my angel of the Lord and he is going to go over all of the houses in Egypt and every house that's going to have the lamb's blood on the doorpost will be spared. But anyone who does not, will be killed. The firstborn will be killed. And they celebrate the Passover every year to remember the God's faithfulness that he, because of this last plague, uh, rescued them from the bondage of sin from their captors in Egypt. And so the nation would gather together. I want to tie this sign with last week's sign together. And I have to do that by adding an addendum on last week's sermon. So, don't do this, but this individual I trust enough that it, it was okay. Elliot Huck came up to me after the service. Is Elliot here this morning? I don't know if Elliot's here. Elliot Huck came up to me after the service. And he goes, hey man, I'm surprised you didn't go to Exodus. You missed it. Why didn't you have the Exodus connection? Now, this is, again, the wine and candy. And I was like, okay, you got to walk me through this one. I don't see it, Elliot. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't want to miss anything from Exodus. He goes, well, think about the first plague in Exodus. Where God, through Moses, turns water, the water of the Nile, into blood as a sign of God's wrath being poured out on Egypt. And here, Jesus, instead of turning, having a sign of wrath, he has a sign of celebration because he doesn't turn it into blood, the water. He turns the water into wine. So this is Jesus saying, I'm not coming for wrath, to pour out wrath upon you. I'm coming so that you might celebrate. There you go. I, I told you I, I would add it in there. Now let's think about this line of these plagues. He goes from the first plague where he says, no longer is this a time of 
wrath, but it is a time of celebration because purification is over. So the water pots that were once used for purification are now used for celebration as we saw last week. Now, this week, what we're going to see is that we, are, we jump to the end, the last plague, and we have the Passover where the Passover lamb was slaughtered. And, and Jesus is here at the temple in this time. So this was a very important time in the nation of Israel in the year. And everyone had their mind focused on this one thing. Now this would draw a lot of people to the temple. In fact, it's believed that Jerusalem would swell to the size of five, six, seven times its normal size as pilgrims would come from all over the region to go to the temple. It was that time that if you were not close, if you have not gone, you would come and you'd have your yearly sacrifices and pay your yearly temple tax. And so think of it in our day and age, think of it as like Christmas and Easter where a lot of people, there's just something on their mind. They go, man, I haven't been to church in a while. I should go on Christmas and Easter. This is how the temple would react to people. They would come in. They would want to, to make that pilgrimage in this time frame. But see, here's the thing. When you make a pilgrimage and when you go to the temple and when you come before the Lord, you need things. We saw this in Exodus. You need a sacrifice. You need to be able to offer what is required of you, the oxen and the sheep and the goats and the pigeons. And somebody in the temple system, and I'm sure some well-meaning priest somewhere along the way, looked at, at the need that these people had and went, you know, these people are journeying a long way. They are traveling many miles. They can't possibly travel that distance with an oxen in tow or a sheep in tow or the pigeon not flying away. So why don't we make their worship experience better by supplying for them their need? And why not we make their, the worship experience easier by supplying money changers so that they can take their Greek money that they would have and transfer it back into the appropriate currency that could be used for the temple tax? Why don't we add these things into their life so that worship could be done easier? That's really what's going on here. Now, it used to be in first century Judaism. It used to be that those supplies were on the mountain opposite the temple. It was on, there was a valley in the middle. It was on the, uh, the Mount of Kidron. And there's all of these markets and stuff were there for the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons and the money changers. But then the people still had to travel down the valley and come back up into the temple. And it just took them so long. So again, some well-meaning person said, let's just put it in the temple. But where did they put it? Where is Jesus walking into? It says in the temple he found they were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers. Now this temple that Jesus is walking into is Herod's temple. It was rebuilt after it was sacked when, and they went off into um, exile. This is Herod's temple as it says it took them 46 years to build this. And it was a massive temple. You can Google what does the Herod's temple diagram look like. And there were many elements inside Herod's temple that had been elaborated on from the tabernacle. So we looked at the tabernacle as we went through Exodus. I want to briefly discuss what Herod's temple would look like. Even if you have a smartphone now, I'm sure somebody's Googling what's Herod's temple look like. Here's the description. It does have the Holy of Holies. It does have the holy place, does have all of the veils. It does have the bronze altar and the altar of incense and the, the, or the bronze basin and the altar of incense and the, and the main altar. But then there are other things, like there's the court of the Levites. 
where all of the Levites could, could come up closest to the temple. And then there's the court of the men where the men could come up closer to the temple. Then there's the court of the women and all of this is within this main structure of the temple itself. But then on one side, there's this massive court and this court is known as the court of the Gentiles. And this court, archaeologists believe, could hold up to 75,000 people. So just think about that. 75,000 people in one court. Now, Nissan Stadium holds 68,000 people. It's three tiers. This isn't a tiered structure. So think about how you're going to cram in that many people. We're talking about acres upon acres upon acres of space that is designated for the court of the Gentiles. So that anyone who wants to come before Yahweh, who wants to come worship the only true God, can come in there. And even if you are a Gentile, there is space for you. But here's what happened. That well-meaning priest somewhere along the way who said we can make our worship easier and all of the animals around the opposite valley, and oh my goodness, it was so hard for people to trudge up that valley, and let's make it easier, decided, hey, this court here is sitting empty. We have acres upon acres that we could use up. Let's put the animals here. Let's put the money changers here. Let's fill this space so our people, as they're going into the temple, have better access. When Jesus walks into the temple, that's what he's walking into, the court of the Gentiles, and he sees oxen and sheep and pigeons and these money changers going about their duties and, and you know animals are loud and stinky money changers are having conversations it's, it's a bustling marketplace right outside the temple so what does Jesus do well it says he made he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple it's really easy. The reason I describe this cord is because it's easy to think that Jesus makes a whip of cords to beat people with. Where he's just so angry, he's just trying to leash pain on them. But he's not. How in the world are you going to clear acres upon acres of people and animals? You're going to make a loud noise. And so his voice doesn't go, harsh, how are you going to, to yell above a crowd? Well, you're going to make a whip, something that as shepherds they were used to making. That's how they herded animals. And so Jesus is going to herd these animals and these people out of this temple because he gets in there and he says, this is inappropriate. This cannot be. I can imagine him walking in and all of a sudden his disciples are like, Jesus, what's wrong? And, and there's this sadness on his heart and mind and he just starts looking around for something and he makes this whip and he starts walking around this court clearing people out why why is why does this anger him why does he not approve of this why does he reach the court of Gentiles and say this can't be this practice has been going on for many many years this was commonplace for everyone else when the disciples when Peter James and John when all of these disciples came into the temple they went this is the way it's supposed to be but when Jesus comes in Clearly, he's like, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. These people need to leave. So what's the issue? He says, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do not make my father's house a place of business. Do not make my father's house a marketplace. Jesus is not angry 
because these individuals are having sharp business practices. There's some, there's some commentators have gone into the fact that, you know, that, that these, these people have created this monopoly where they had to buy these animals and so they were overcharging for these animals and that one animal would be clean and the next animal wouldn't be clean and then it would be clean again. It was this whole racket that the priest had with these marketplaces. That's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't angry over the sharp business dealings of these merchants. Jesus is angry that these merchants are there. So even the most well-meaning person of, I just want to supply the right animal and sacrifice for these pilgrims coming. I just want to do this. Jesus, even there, is like, no, this is wrong. You need to get out of here. Why? Because they're misusing the purpose of the temple. Jesus' anger stems not from the fact that there's animals there and not from the fact that these pilgrims can buy these animals but from the fact that they're misusing the temple. You shouldn't be here because this is not what the temple was designed for. Now, we're going to come back to what the temple was designed for and why Jesus can say that. But as he's clearing out the, this court of Gentiles, undoubtedly everyone's starting to notice because they're like, okay, who's the guy making a racket in the middle of this and spreading all of these animals out? And who's flipping over all of these money tables? Who has gone berserk? And so the Jews, as it says in 18, the authorities say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Really what they're saying is, what authority do you have that allows you to act this way? Because I come on behalf of the high priest. And the high priest has said it's okay for them to be here. So if you say that they shouldn't be here, prove to us that you are greater than, you have more authority than the high priest. What sign do you show? Now, I wonder if the word had spread of what Jesus did in Cana. I wonder. I mean, it's amazing how fast stuff like that can spread. So, I wonder if they're like, are you going to show another sign? Well, here's what Jesus tells them. Okay, I'll show you a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So, Jesus said that in this delegation of Jews, these people who are on call. Imagine being on call that day at the temple. This guy's like, I did not sign up for this. What is going on? Who is this lunatic? We had this a well-oiled machine here, and then this guy brings out a whip, and we got to get all these animals back. Destroy this temple, and in three days you'll build it up, you'll rise it up again? What in the world are you talking about? Uh, Jesus, don't you know the history of this temple? We had to rebuild this because it was destroyed. And it took us 46 years to get it to this point. You think you can do it in three days? You're one man. We had hundreds of people working on this temple. Now, here's what's interesting about this sign. There's some complex nuances that are going on here. The first one is this. Notice the implied subject of this statement. Destroy this temple. Who? Who's going to destroy this temple? He did, is it, I will destroy this temple and rise it up in three days? No. The implied subject is, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now, no priest or Levite or good religious Christian, they're not Christian at this point, person is going to take a hammer to the temple no person is going to say, okay, so you want a sign, but in order for me to get the sign first, I have to destroy this. 
No person is going to do that. So in one sense, Jesus is like, listen, if you want a sign, you're going to have to earn it, which means you're going to have to destroy this. So pick up your hammer and sledgehammer and go to work and then I will restore it. That's how they heard that. They heard this, you destroy this building, this precinct, this, this section of the city, and then I will rebuild it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. You see, they had their eyes on the wrong temple. In this passage, there are two Greek words used for temple. And I want to just highlight this because if you were reading this in the original language, you would get it. The first word is haran. That's the word that was used in 14 in the temple he found. And haran means the whole temple, the whole precinct, the whole compound, the whole thing. It's what you would say is I'm going up to the temple. It's saying I'm going to church. Now you might get to church and say where in church are we going? The upper room, the sanctuary, the annex, the blah, blah, like all that. But you would say the church as the whole compound, the whole place, the building here. So when he goes, he went up to the temple, he says, I'm using the Haran, the whole precinct. But there's another word used. That's naos. And naos means the dwelling place of God or the sanctuary proper. That's what people would, would use when they were talking about the holy place or the holy of holies, that intimate structure, the dwelling place of God. What Jesus says when he says, destroy this temple, he doesn't use Haran. He doesn't use the whole thing. He uses the word for the dwelling place of God. Let's for a moment think back to chapter 1 verse 14. When he says destroy this temple, what he's meaning is the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. He's saying the dwelling place of God is no longer in this building. And the reason it's no longer in this building because the dwelling place of God and man is in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he took on flesh and dwelt among us. So when he says destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up, what he is saying is destroy me and I will raise it up. Now, they thought in their mind, I would never, I would never destroy the temple because they're thinking of the building in Jerusalem. But how does the story go? In the end, they destroyed the temple. Because they put the temple on a tree and killed it. And what happened to the temple when he was put on the tree and killed him and died? He was put into the grave in three days. He was rebuilt. He rose from the grave. He came back to life. He was there again. And what I love is that in this moment, Jesus in one sense loses this battle. Let's think, let's think about it from the moment of the disciples and the actual moment of this temple cleansing. He goes, destroy this temple and it will rise again in three days. And I'm sure, he, and then it just stops because it's like the authorities get the last word. Well, no, that's stupid because it took us 46 years. You're dumb. Go away. And his disciples, I'm sure sheepishly were like, what in the world just happened? That's the dumbest sign I've ever heard of destroy it it's the temple it's the center of who we are but notice what it says in this passage that after 
Jesus rose from the grave. His disciples remembered what went down. And I am sure there were many, many moments when the 12 got in a room and started to go, what did we just live through the last three years? Did anyone see this coming? Like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't expect that this was how it would end. But as they were putting pieces back together, as they had the missing puzzle piece of the cross and the grave and resurrection, they started to go, oh, I now understand it. There's two passages in here where they, they start to remember what he said. The first one is this, the zeal for your house will consume me. What's being talked about here? Well, what's, what this is, is this is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. And this psalm is a psalm of David lamenting over the fact that the wicked are persecuting him because of his love and worship for God. He is lamenting and saying, I am following you and I'm losing friends. I am being hated and I am in, I'm in pain, God, because of you. Here's, this is just a, uh, a section of it. This is 69, 7 through 9. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brother, an alien to my mother's house. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach me have fallen on me. What David is saying in 69.9 is, because of you, I have been hated. Look what these disciples quote. They thought back and went, oh, the zeal for your house will consume me. Just think for a moment. If I read this, that quote, zeal for your house will consume me. What's the word that jumps out at you? What's the word that you go, oh, that's the point. For me, up until studying this passage, I always gravitated towards zeal. Talking about that, that desire, that burden, that passion for your house will consume me. In this context, the word that's actually being put on display is not zeal. It's consume. Because Christ's passion for the temple, for what the temple symbolized, will so will have so much zeal for that it will consume him on the cross. He walks in and what the temple is standing there for is so important to him that it will utterly consume him. That is why he came. And then there's the second one. The second one, when he goes to destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It is only until he has risen from the grave that his disciples say, I get it. What he is talking about isn't the building. What he's talking about is his, his body. So let's go back to the question that started our morning. Why is Jesus so mad? Why does Jesus have so much anger over what is going down? is because he walks into the temple and what he sees is neglect and rejection of the things of God. He sees how the temple has been misused and misunderstood. There's a neglect here because instead of carrying the weight of sin towards God, instead of carrying that weight of God, I need you, it's, I can take care of this. We can... Supply the things that we need. I'll pay my taxes. I'll have my sacrifices. I'll go into Jerusalem and party. 
And then there's this rejection. Think about where this marketplace was set up. In the court of the Gentiles. What Israel was saying to the rest of the world, Yahweh is for us and us alone. You don't, we don't need you. We don't want you. We don't have a place for you. This is for us. We're going to take your position, your place, your court to come before the Lord and we're going to fill it with our stuff. So Jesus walks in and is overwhelmed at the fact that Israel has rejected the Gentiles that want to come before the Lord. This harkens back to the point of Israel and the point of the temple. Israel was never placed on this earth to be the only worshipers of God. Israel was never placed on this earth and says, you and you alone are going to be saved. Israel was placed on this earth. God used Israel on this earth so that all nations might understand what it means to have a relationship with God. Israel is the example. Israel is not the finishing point. And so this court of Gentiles is necessary because everyone has to come, should, can, has to come before the creator of the world. There is only one God. And we all, Jew or Gentile, need to come before him. And here in this temple at this time, they are rejecting, they are blocking other people to come. So instead of coming in with broken and contrite and weary hearts as we are called to do, these Gentiles were left to stand off in the distance. But what does Jesus say he will do? What does Jesus point to at this time? Whether the disciples recognize that now or after his death, what Jesus is saying is, um, all of this is about me. This temple that you're in, the reason that this temple exists is for the acceptance and care of the broken. And you are going to find that acceptance and care in me. Jesus steps in and goes, I'm going to care for your deepest sins and burdens and I'm going to accept whomever comes to me regardless of where he is. So when he comes in, he is overwhelmed by the pain, just the misuse that he sees. I want to compare again the wedding of Cana and the cleansing of the temple. In the wedding, Jesus steps back. He's in a corner somewhere. His mother comes to him and goes, we ran out of wine. And his response is, what does that have to do with me? I'm not here for that. He acts anyway. He walks into the temple and he does not step back. He steps forward. He goes, I have to do something. I hope this isn't going to be a shocking illustration or a rough jump, but I'm going to try it anyway. There's a reality TV show that I uh, have liked to watch in the past. I don't know if it's still on or still, this still airs, but I don't know if they're new. It's called Undercover Boss. Here's the tagline if you haven't seen it. High-level corporate execs leave the comforts of their office and secretly take low-level jobs within their companies to find out how things really work and what their employees really think about them. For a moment, let's consider Philippians 2 or that high-level exec, the God of the universe, Christ took on flesh, humbled himself, coming to earth to go to the cross. In undercover boss, these executives would go and they would, they get to see life on the ground without the big guy around. 
And of course, the show goes on. Some, there's always some good things. There's always some bad things. I don't know how set up it is. I don't know about that. In the, in the end, they go, oh, I better understand the company that I'm in. Jesus, the king of the universe, the king walks into his temple, his domain, the temple that points to him. If he is in charge of any one place, he's in charge of every place, if he's in charge of any one place, it is the temple because all point to him. He walks into the temple and he cannot stand back. He has to go, you have got this all wrong. I don't want to hear the billowing of cattle. I don't want to hear the money changing hands. I don't want to hear this bartering system. That's not the point of this place. In one sense, you could say the point of the temple is not to make your life easier. In one sense, you could say the point of the temple is not to make your worship easier. He goes, no, this place is for the broken. This place is for the contrite. This place is for the needy. This place is for those who are coming for hope and for peace, and they will find it. So get rid of all of this garbage and look to God again. His concern is that the Gentiles were missing out. Get that, the Gentiles. In the Jewish mind, the people who shouldn't be there because they weren't good enough. His concern was for the needy and the wayward. And he is clearing out going, this is not the purpose of me and this is not the purpose of the temple. Israel had basically made a nationalist stronghold. Yahweh's for us and us alone. Jesus' message in, in the cleansing of the temple is, no, get out of here. He's for everyone. I, I have to quote this passage because it just keeps coming up. And it's true in every single passage, but especially here. And it's, it's listed in Matthew 11. And Jesus says, he's describing his people. He's describing who he is for. He was explicit. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These Israelites, they had no place for those who labored and were heavy laden. They had no place for the needy. They had no place for the person who walked into the temple and said, God, I have nothing to bring, but I trust that you're gonna be faithful. They had no place for the person who walks in and says, I just need to be with you. They filled it up with all their merchandise. And what Jesus says right here at the beginning of his ministry, what he demonstrates indeed is that no, the temple, the temple of the living God and the temple is for everyone in need. It's for the lowly, it's for the meek, it's for the hurting, it's for those who are looking to, for rest. And by the grace of God, he'll give it. As we turn our attention towards communion today, again, we don't, Take the table 
because we had a good week. We don't take the table because we say that we deserve it. We take the table so that these elements might remind us that the body and the blood that we deserve or that we require is found in Christ. Because if it's up to us, we will die. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, first, we're so thankful that you're here. But we would ask that you let these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take them to save us. We take them so that we might be reminded of the finished work of Christ. Let's pray and we can take that together. Father, thank you so much for your word and your church and your gospel and your hope. Thank you that the gospel is not one of work and duty and law, but grace and peace. Father, for, in, for those who are hurting this morning, who are laboring, who are heavy laden, who feel the yoke of the law upon their shoulders, who are stuck in their sin or stuck in their self-righteousness, trying to just work their way to you, Lord, break them and show them that the only hope we have the only chance for peace and rest is found in you. And we can run to you and not receive more burdens or taskless or boxes to check, but a place where we can rest knowing that it is finished. Everything that was required has been fulfilled in you and we can live in peace. Thank you for this gospel. In your name, amen.